Good morning. It is uh, indeed always a wonderful privilege to come and visit you. And uh, I visit scarcely enough that when I come, it's always a, a joy to hear of how the Lord is, is growing this body and how He's adding to it and how He's maturing you and how He's freeing your, your pastor up to, to greater ministry opportunities. And so uh, thank you for this opportunity as, as always, Brandon. It's always a delight. It's, it's always a joy. Uh, it's not always possible for us to get here, but when we do, uh, it's a great privilege. So, so thank you for, for this opportunity. Um, why don't we once again go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask Him for His blessing on this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word. Your living and active word. We know your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. We know, Lord, that there is no creature that is hidden from your sight, but all of us are exposed to your eyes to whom we will give an account. And so, Lord, I plead with you that you would use your word this morning to convict us, to encourage us, to help us wade through those murky waters of self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-help that we so often lean towards. And that you would show us Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, the one whom we've sung of this morning and gloried in already, the one who intercedes for us, our righteousness and our example, our faithful high priest, our perfect Savior, what mercy and what grace you've given us in him. And so we pray, Lord, that you would humble us under your word, that you would exalt us in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you would... Turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. As you turn there, by way of introduction, many of you may have seen in the news recently the man who had lost access to 7,000 bitcoins. He had forgotten the password. The password was on a secure hard drive. There were 7,002 bitcoins that were saved on this iron key device. And this device gives owners 10 chances to get their password right, after which it would encrypt the information on the hard drive and forever be lost. He had two chances left to get this password correct and eventually made peace that probably he would never have access to this great wealth. This wealth was worth $270 million and counting. And apparently he's not the only Bitcoin owner who had experienced this. Can you imagine knowing that you own this kind of wealth and you have no way of accessing it? Well, in some ways, I think Christians have similar experiences. Perhaps they get saved and once saved they realize the riches they have in Christ, but they don't know how to access it. They don't know how to get this provision from Christ. Or worse still, they once knew how to, but a couple of years have passed by and they've potentially forgotten the password, so to speak. And in this way, they've forgotten how God grants provision in Christ and perhaps as a result they left miserable 
disillusioned, or perhaps even depressed. Back in 1991, John MacArthur published a book called Our Sufficiency in Christ. And in the preface to this book, he anticipated that it would be very controversial due to a widespread lack of confidence in Christ's sufficiency within the contemporary church. He writes this on page 19 of that book. Too many Christians have quietly acquiesced to the notion that our riches in Christ, including Scripture, prayer, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and all the other spiritual resources we find in Christ, simply are not adequate to meet people's real needs. This wasn't new then. It's not new today. And that kind of attitude wasn't new 2,000 years ago when men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. One of these men was Simon Peter. He specifically addressed this to the saints there in Asia Minor. And so let me briefly set out the context of this letter before we read it. In contrast to his first letter, where he addresses the saints there to endure under persecution from external attacks, this letter addresses attacks from within. Peter, in an almost last will and testament, writes to these believers to warn them about the doctrinal dangers that were facing them from the false teachers around them. Shortly after this letter was written, Peter was martyred. From a reliable tradition, we believe he was crucified upside down. But in this letter, Peter instructs the Christians how to defend themselves against these false teachers and their deceptive lies. Peter was also just as concerned to show the immoral character of these teachers as he was to expose their teaching. Peter tells us that wickedness is not the product of sound doctrine, but rather of destructive heresies. And so Peter motivates his readers to continue to develop their Christian character, looking within. And by doing this, he wonderfully explains how a believer can have assurance of salvation that we've sung about this morning and that Brandon prayed about. Peter also wanted to persuade the readers of the divine nature of Scripture. And then near the end of the letter, he presents reasons for the delay of Christ's second coming, that God is being patient with those who will believe. Another recurring theme in this letter is the importance of knowledge. The word knowledge appears in some form 16 times in these three short chapters. So it's not too much to say that, that Peter's primary solution to false teaching and immoral character is knowledge of true doctrine. We are only going to focus in on verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1 in Second Peter. But to understand the context of these verses better, we'll read from verse 1 to the end of verse 4. Read along with me Second Peter 1. From verse 1 to 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, because of sinful desire. 
The title this morning is Knowledge is Power. Undoubtedly, you've heard this phrase before. And if you think about it, this is true of the man who lost his password to his great riches, as it is of the Christian that has lost access to the provision that he has in Christ. Three questions that we're going to ask of Peter's text this morning. What power, what knowledge, and what is this for? Three questions so that in answering them, we will know what power is available, what knowledge is necessary in order to attain this power, and what should motivate us to strive for it. Let's look again now at verse 3 and 4 only. Firstly, the question, what power? The answer is, it's a sufficient power. Look at verse 3 there. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whose power is he referring to there? Christ's. He is the subject of verse 2. His goes back to modify that phrase in verse 2, Jesus our Lord. It is the power of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, maybe it could go back to referring to God there in verse 2. And it could, except he probably wouldn't use the term divine, because if he was referring back to God, it would be enough to say his power, since inherent in the word God, is deity. So the fact that he adds divine leads us to assume that he goes back to Jesus our Lord, whose deity someone may have questioned at the time. And so he says it's Jesus our Lord and it's his power, his divine power. Now the New Testament isn't quiet on Christ's power. Matthew 24 verse 30 says the Lord Jesus had great power. According to Mark chapter 5 and verse 30, great power came out of him to heal. According to Luke 4.14, his ministry in Galilee was done with power. According to Luke 5, just before our reading this morning in verse 17, the power of the Lord God was present with him. In 2 Corinthians 12.19, Paul rejoiced that the power of Christ dwelt in him. And 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Peter helps us here by emphatically stating that the power is divine in its origin, in its manifestation, and in its outpouring, and that that power is Christ's. Brothers and sisters, it's not the preacher's power. It's not that anointed man of God. It's not the special TV evangelist who, who possesses some specialized gift, and if you send your monetary offering in together with his anointed handkerchief back, you'll get your blessing. No, it's Christ's divine power. And notice who he gives it to. He gives it to us all. Look there in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us. Who is the us that he's referring to there? The subject matter of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. All of those who are in Christ are in equal standing with Him and He has granted. Has is in the past tense. Everyone has been given divine power. It is a done deal to the called. It has been granted. It's a generous power. Large-handed giving is the idea here. You see, church, Scripture says that God is very generous. In fact, in all of the issues of life, it says He's great and 
plentiful and tender and abundant and above the heavens from everlasting to everlasting. This is our God. In John 1, 16 of the New Testament, it says, For of His fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace. When we received Christ, we didn't get part of Him. We got His fullness. Could it be, church family, that we've forgotten how kind and how generous and how loving our Heavenly Father is. That His principal relation to us is that of giving, not primarily commanding and demanding. Primarily it is that of giving. Of course the others are true too. He continues, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We know it's a sufficient power, all things, but sufficient for what? His divine, all-sufficient power has granted to all of us of equal faith everything pertaining to life and godliness. Two things specifically, life and godliness. Now some in the church that I would love to separate those two terms as if it's possible to be given eternal life apart from the godliness that proves eternal life. And when this happens, a few things become real in the church. Number one, as Jude tells us in verses 3 and 4, listen to what he writes to the saints there, Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Now, just to pause there for a moment, there's not much more important, is there, than our common salvation, is there? But he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, and listen to how he describes them, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and thereby deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot separate life from godliness. There is no such thing contrary to what we see in the church today, that because of God's grace you can live an immoral life. Paul says, may it never be. Another scenario is that at best this wrong idea causes believers to seek for second blessings or spirit baptisms or tongues or mystical experiences or, or special psychological insights, the deeper life, the higher life. Or worse, another scenario in our circles is that it can lead to some sort of fatalistic, hyper-Calvinistic complacency where a believer may be waiting for that spiritual spark to take them to the place that they need to get to, not realizing that all things have been provided in Christ already. There's a danger with this type of complacency. John Piper says, when you sit back to do nothing, you're not doing nothing. You are actively engaging your will in a decision to sit back. And this is blatant disobedience. You see, Christians can't claim that their sins or, or their failures are either as a result of God's limited provision or His timing of events. We have been given everything that we need for life and godliness. Peter makes this amazing statement that, that it's all there. We've received from God all things that pertain to life and godliness. That term, all things, is in the emphatic position because the Holy Spirit, through Peter, wants to stress the extent of the believer's self-sufficiency. You heard that right. In Christ, 
And only in Christ is the believer self-sufficient. That great power that gives a Christian spiritual life is the same power that will sustain it in all its fullness. Church family, let me put it to you this way. The Christian can never experience a power failure. You can get unplugged. You can turn the switch off. But the power never fails. It can't. It's there. It's divine power the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Divine power is granted to us. To Christians, that is. It's what Paul describes to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Well, what does that look like? He tells us in verse 9 of that chapter, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the power of God, friends. Not primarily that He can give you a new car, or that He can provide a spouse, or that He can give you a new job, but that He arrests the heart of stone, and He gives you a heart of flesh. He rejects your rejection just when you thought you were in control and he does what's best for his glory and for your good. We have everything from his divine power but related to what? First of all, all things pertaining to life. What a statement. Everything related to life we have. We have new life in Christ. We have everything related to sustaining that life in Christ. And that's why, it's hard, why we have to believe, rather, that a Christian is eternally secure, as we've sung about this morning. That the work he's begun in us, he will complete. That none will be left from his hand, but he will raise us up on that last day, all that the Father has given him. Those terms, life and godliness, cannot be separated. But the one does come before the other. Spiritual life must exist before there can be true godliness. What does that spiritual life look like? How does it begin? A knowledge of God experimentally is the first step of life. This is what Jesus speaks about in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To use a physical, material, earthly example, when a child is born, that child must have vital breath first before it cries and before it learns to walk in the footsteps of his father. It's not by godliness that we attain life, but rather by life that we obtain godliness. That's why we believe that in any struggle or trial of life, you have everything you need. You have it in fullness. The scriptures tell us you have it in abundance and you have it in perfection. Everything you need for life and godliness. So he adds that term, not just life, but and godliness. That word means true reverence. Reverence in worship, yes, but also in active obedience. Now you don't need to be asking for something more, some ecstatic experience, some extra biblical reality, some ecstatic gift, some miracle, some sign or wonder. You have every spiritual resource needed to sustain and perfect that eternal life that is in you. Every spiritual resource to manifest that eternal life in godly living. It has been granted by His divine power. It's been given to us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and, and verse 8 brings this 
to focus. And I want you to listen to the descriptions that he uses here. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having always all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Are we lacking anything from our God who supplies so richly to us all things that we need for life and godliness? Well, you may say, why do so many people doubt that? Why do so many believers struggle? Well, one reason that some people doubt is because they're not really saved. They don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in that way, they're insufficient. They just think they're saved. Another reason people doubt is because they're ignorant. They don't know what they have in Christ. This is one of the reasons why Paul prays for the Ephesians that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened so that they'll know what? What is the riches of His grace? Another reason some people don't experience this is even though they're truly saved and they're sufficient, perhaps even they may be well taught and know they're sufficient, they're not walking uprightly. And so the resources are there, but they're not accessing them. But for the true Christian and the obedient Christian by faith, there is complete sufficiency. These terms, Romans 8, verse 32. Just listen carefully to what he says here. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is with his son, freely give us all things? Here's the reason. If God has given us the most, the sacrifice of his own son, how will he not also with him give us the things that the death of his son purchased? You say, well, yes, God did give me his best gift, his son. He forgave my sins in the sacrifice of his son. But isn't it too much to ask him for peace to endure in this situation? No. No, if he's given you the best, why would he hold back the lesser things you need for life and godliness? You see, all of this speaks of the great reality that in Christ we are sufficient and we have a sufficient salvation. Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not discounting Christian fellowship. I'm not discounting the wisdom in mutual care and kindness and counsel. But what I am saying is when it comes to the spiritual resources that we need, we are, by the indwelling Spirit, through the miracle of salvation, sufficient believers. Another way to say that would be that salvation is not a stingy gift. His divine power in Christ is all we need. And so the first answer to our first question, what power is it? It's an all-sufficient power. You have a sufficient power. It's being granted to you. How does this power then come about in the life of a believer? That is our second question. What knowledge? The answer is, it's a salvation knowledge. You could say a salvific knowledge. Look there in the second part of verse 3. How does this come about? It comes through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so immediately we see that the divine power comes through, I like how the NASB translates it, epignosis, you could translate that word true knowledge. Or deep knowledge. It's our true knowledge of Him. 
It's not some made-up idea of who we think Christ should be. Spurgeon writes of this verse, It is through knowing God that we realize His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For all of these things are in Him. And as we know Him, trust Him, love Him, and become like Him, we also come to possess all these precious things in Him. Epignosis is a knowledge laying claim to personal involvement. Peter wants the saints there to understand the riches available to them in God's knowledge. Ideally, epignosis or true knowledge controls and directs one's, one's behavior. That phrase, ignorance is bliss, is not true, in case you didn't realize. Well, how do we obtain this epignosis? How do we find this experiential true knowledge of Christ? Obviously, this knowledge has to somehow relate to the intake of His Word. If you'll turn over with me to John 14 and verse 21, Jesus Himself gives us a clue here. John 14 21 he says the following he who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me and he who loves me shall be loved by my father and i will love him and i will disclose myself to him this promise is surely one of the most incredible precious and magnificent promises in all the Word of God. Notice the verbs that he uses, has and keeps, are both in the present tense. This implies that it's a lifestyle of reading and then obeying God's Word. The one who follows this path will find experience in every increasing intimacy in his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. That word discloses or manifests or evidences himself to greater and greater degrees. That's the idea. Now this is not visible, of course. But nonetheless, it is very spiritual and supernatural through prayer and through the reading of God's word. Do you desire a greater knowledge of Christ? Do you desire more intimate knowledge of him and a more intimate relationship with him his desire is that we will realize that we can have this kind of communion obviously through prayer and through our fellowship with him in the word so you have to know christ it's not some superficial knowledge it's not some kind of surface awareness of the facts that jesus lived and died and rose again like what Rick Holland called the unsaved believers in the Gospel of John. An intellectual knowledge of who this man is, but no heart change to want to follow him. When it says that the power comes through the knowledge of him, it does mean that kind of intimate relationship that a person can have with Christ by faith, by truly knowing him in the sense of that intimate communion. Well, you may say, practically tell me, how does that knowledge take place? When I understand that Jesus lived and died as God in human flesh, when I understand that he died for my sin, when I understand that he rose again, when I understand that he's Lord of all, and I come to him and I say, I believe in you, I turn away from my sin, and I give you my life to follow you in obedience as my Lord. If that is genuine, it brings one into a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when you're born into that family of God, you're born sufficient and self-contained in Christ. Nothing new is added. The scriptures tell us you are a totally new what? Creation. A fully self-contained, developed new life in Christ. You could say it this way, it's like a newborn baby. Fully developed. Everything is there. 
Sure, you need to learn. Sure, you need to grow. But all the resources are there. Because Scripture tells us that my God shall supply all your need. How? According to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. By means of Christ Jesus comes all your needs supplied. And so personal knowledge of Christ develops. But there's more in our texture. There's a couple of elements to this marvelous true knowledge. First of all, our text tells us that God initiates it. Look there again at verse 3. It is through the knowledge of him who called us. This isn't like your cell phone rings and you can reject the call or you get an invitation and you need to RSVP. This is an effectual call. You can't come to that true knowledge of Christ unless God what? Calls you. That's the sovereign side. How does he call you? Well, John's gospel gives us insight to this. John 16 and verse 8. You begin to see your sin. The Holy Spirit, John says, comes to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and the judgment. Concerning sin because they are adulterers? No. Concerning sin because they are immoral? No. Because they are drunkards? No. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And so then the power of Satan and his blinding you is broken. Then you begin to see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's God drawing you. That's the only way you can have a true knowledge of God is when he draws you. Jesus puts it this way, no man comes to me unless the Father, what? Draw. But there's something else here. What about my part? Look at verse 3 again. He calls us by his own glory and excellence. What caused me to seek a true knowledge of Christ and what causes you to seek that knowledge of him is when you saw his glory and excellence. Do you see that there? God calls, but that calling becomes effectual as we are drawn by the glory and the excellence of Christ. That's the only way that you can have saving faith is to understand Christ. That's why in John's gospel, for example, he presents Christ. Miracle after miracle after miracle. The majestic, unbelievably divine, supernatural words and works of Jesus Christ. And then at the end he says, these things were written so that one would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. When you're seeing the glory of Christ, you're seeing the deity of Christ, his divine nature. And you have to see Christ as God in human flesh. You have to be impacted by the glory of his majestic deity. That is why we must always present Christ, preach Christ, proclaim Christ, because it's that means and only that means that the call of God to draw men is affected. It's amazing to me how many people in the church today, maybe not the true church, think that we can draw men to God in Christ. Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How are they to believe in whom they've never heard, he says. And the first thing you want to hear from him is his glory, that he is God. Timothy was made wise unto salvation because he was acquainted with the sacred writings. We need the word of God to show us Christ in his glory and that's how men come to know him. So what do we have to preach to sinners? What do we have to preach to people who don't know the Lord? We have to preach the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to preach that he was God in human flesh as proven by what he said and by what he did. And then it says that we are drawn by his excellence. 
not just his glory, but also his excellence. When we look at Jesus Christ, we not only see that he is God, but we see perfect humanity. We see a perfect excellence. We see a display of divine acts and divine words coming through that perfect God-man. The divine nature of Jesus and the moral excellence of his life is what draws men. And that's the only thing that will draw men to God. It's not promising them happiness. It's not promising them good times. It's not promising them heaven. It's not the choice of music that your church puts on. It's not how cool your pastors or, or members are. It's not that you meet in a nightclub and you're more relevant to the world. They see that he's God and that he's perfect and that we are not. And that great disparity causes men to repent. It's all about truly knowing Christ. So we see that the answer to our second question, what knowledge is this that we need to attain this power? It's a salvation knowledge. Sufficient power is granted to us through salvation knowledge. Then notice that a true knowledge of God cannot be divorced from a fixed belief in his promises. You cannot claim to know God apart from what the Bible says about who he is and what he will do. And that brings us to the third question. What is this all for? What do I need this knowledge for to gain this power that I need? What is it for? And the answer to that is it's for a sanctified participation. Notice the next thing that this knowledge has accomplished in verse 4 here. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The knowledge of God's promises are precious remedies to believers for all circumstances. Most believers who are discouraged have forgotten or begun to disbelieve God's promises. To use the illustration from my introduction, that password to those lost bitcoins would have meant nothing if it weren't for the promise of what they were worth. And it's the same thing for believers. Hebrews 11 puts it this way, He that comes to God must not only believe that He exists, but what? That He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Do you see the link? The intimacy of the knowledge of our God who cannot lie, who is unchangeable, who hasn't ever altered a thing that has gone from His mouth, nor called back one single word, nor who lacks any power, who made the heavens and the earth, it is he who has promised. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 tells us, For as many may be the promises of God, in him they are yes, and therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. We are partakers of the divine nature. This knowledge of Christ initiates and it produces in us a process where we become more like him. This does not mean we'll become divine like I think my last sermon to you was 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I told you last time Spurgeon called this the beatific vision. What a hope, what a day that will be. This is an emphatic escape from the world's corruption and a participation in Christ's moral virtues. 
That's what salvation is. You may ask, well, what are the promises of God? It's all of them. All things. Things present, things to come, life and in death, everything. He promises us life. He promises us blessings in the heavenlies. He promises us abundant grace upon grace. He promises us joy. He promises us strength, guidance, help, instruction, wisdom, the Holy Spirit. He promises us heaven. He promises eternal rewards. It's all of ours, all of it. Fear not, little flock, for it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If we would just repent and believe, it's the Lord's kindness that leads one to repentance. So in conclusion, the purpose for the promises, the purposes for God's goodness to us through Christ is so that we would partake of His divine nature. When you come to Jesus Christ, you receive everything that you need for life and godliness. Not only that, you receive on top of that all of His promises in time and eternity, and you become partakers in His nature. What does that look like? We partake of God's life in us. We partners in that same life. How can that be, you may ask? Because of the end of verse 4. We have escaped from the corruption that is in the of sinful desires or lust. At the time of salvation, we escaped. We escaped from that rottenness of our decomposing, stinking, fallen nature. And now I'm a new creation. I have new life in Christ. The life of God is in my soul. And I have everything that I need and you need for life and godliness. Well, what next, you may ask? Well, verse 5 to verse 11 tells you what next. Do we have time to read it? Okay, verse 5. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's progressive. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten his password, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things progressively, these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the false teachers felt that transcendent knowledge elevates you above the need for godliness. Peter says, no, true knowledge gives you all that you need to live a godly life. The false teachers taught that holiness was impossible. Peter says, holiness is inevitable. Is there sufficiency in Christ? Listen to this. Anything less than a complete sufficient salvation mocks God and dishonors Christ. Our God gives more grace. More than what? More than we could ever possibly think or imagine. Therefore, the answer to our previous questions is salvation knowledge is sufficient power for a sanctified participation. Salvation knowledge is sufficient power for a sanctified participation. 
That's what the power is that's available. That's the knowledge you need. And that's what it's for. Do you know Christ? Have you gazed upon his glory? Have you seen his excellence? Have you experienced the power that he grants? Have you heard his call? If you've heard this call, I plead with you, repent. He will give you the grace you need. He will give you the power you need to escape the corruption that is in the world due to lust. Place your trust in Christ and in his promises and he will give you life. But more importantly, he will give you himself. You will partake of his divine nature. What a promise. What a savior. For believers who are struggling, look to Christ's glory. Look to his excellence. He is perfect. And know that he's given you everything that you need. Because Christ has overcome the world. And he is in you. And you are in him. Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. Peter says it this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is the God whom we serve. This is what he's done for us. This is what he's given us. And this is what we get to partake in, to his glory and for our good. And so let's pray together again. Father, thank you for your amazing goodness. We want to indeed acknowledge you and, and give you thanks for all that you have provided for us in Christ. It truly is more than we could ever think of or imagine. Had you left us to our own devices, we could never have dreamed up such a marvelous salvation. We would never have thought of this marvelous way in which you've redeemed us, reconciled us to yourself by gazing upon your beloved Son, in whom we know you are well pleased. Forgive us, Lord, where we've forgotten all that you've provided in your Son. Forgive us, Lord, where we've lent upon our own strengths, our own wisdom, our own riches, our own might, where we've forgotten, Lord, that the power we've been given is that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That you are faithful, Lord, to your promises. Even when we are not, you remain faithful. Help us to realize, Lord, that all we need is in you. And you are in us. And so we pray for your help. We cry out, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Where we are weak, help us to remember that you are strong. And so we need your grace, Lord. We need Christ. And we ask for his help. And it's in his name again that we pray. Amen.